On this All Saints Day, we remember that thousands and thousands of Christians have given their lives for the sake of their beliefs. And even on this day, there are people living in danger or losing their life simply because they say, I believe in Jesus Christ. So with that, and in honor of them, we begin today with the very first martyr, the very first witness, and that's Stephen. So would you stand with me, please, and help me out on this scripture? I'll read the first paragraph, and then you read the second. This comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen, but filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Everyone? Look, he said. Okay, hold up. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, everyone, Lord Jesus. Thank you very much. Have a seat. And so we honor Stephen. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And most Christians think of a martyr as someone who has died for their faith. But that actually is not the meaning of the word martyr. Martyr actually means the word witness. And so it's actually someone who has witnessed Christ. And here we have Stephen, the first martyr, actually being the first witness. He is the one who sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in his vision of heaven. And that's where we get the word martyr, not someone who just dies, but simply sees Jesus. That's the real definition. And wouldn't we like to see Jesus? Wouldn't we like to experience Christ? Not just perhaps even in a vision of heaven with Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, although that would be very spectacular. Wouldn't we like to gaze into the eyes of Jesus? Don't we somehow think that life would become clearer? That somehow all the questions we have would somehow fade away? And things would become very clear for us if we could just get to Jesus. Because we don't know how to pray very well. And we sure don't know how to be Christians very well. We kind of oscillate and fluctuate and jump around and fall back and forth in our Christian life. We don't are really good at praying. How do we get to gaze into the eyes of Jesus? And for centuries, the answer was right here. The Ponto Crater. You have a handout there that I gave you. It has some details about it in your uh, handouts. The Ponto Crater. It means ruler of all. Pon meaning pan, meaning all of creation. The ruler of all creation. From the 6th century in the Sinai Peninsula in St. Catherine's Monastery where you saw all the pictures and listened to the chant. That's where this comes from. This is a reproduction, by the way. I don't have the real thing here. It'd be worth millions of dollars. But... Um, this is a reproduction of it, and it's actually still at St. Catharines, out in the middle of the mountains, jutting between two massive peaks that they say looks just like hands, and here's this little monastery. You saw it sitting out in the middle of the desert, right in the midst of all the of, uh, Islam, too, Christians. So I'm going to speak about this for the rest of our time and talk really about prayer and really our understanding because, folks, here's the deal. I'm afraid that if you're like me, Oftentimes, after being a Christian for a while, or maybe even being a new Christian, you just don't know how to pray. 
And prayer becomes dead and becomes shallow. And pretty soon, if you really take account of yourself, you're thinking like, you know what? I don't think I've really earnestly prayed in uh, weeks. Or I just do these kind of little, you know, snap at prayers. God, get that guy out of the, in front of me as I'm driving. Or, you know, <laughs> or I found myself saying, Lord, I just need two more runs. Just two more. That's all I need is two more runs. You know, and like, God, I can't believe I've fallen into such cheesy, simple, we just need two more runs, God. I don't care what I sound like. You know? Maybe your prayers have fallen apart. Maybe you've outgrown them, and you're just coasting along in your Christian life. Well, today, perhaps we have a way to jumpstart it, but I'm telling you, you're going to have to change out your brain. Because your system is perfectly designed to produce the results you're currently getting, so you're going to have to trade out systems. And this sort of thing is the sort of thing that's going to hopefully rock your world. <laughs> that's what I'm after. You know, Protestant Christians, we don't, we don't mess with icons. For the last 550 years, with, Willi uh, William, with uh, Martin Luther, we renounced all this sort of thing. We thought, we, this is in danger of being a graven image, of violating the second commandment. Thou shall not have any other idols. Thou shall not make a graven image and worship it. And aren't those Orthodox Christians really, really close, if not they're really doing it, worshiping this sort of thing? Isn't this an idol? And so we've kind of renounced them and said, that's, that's wrong-headed. That's not working. You know, and besides... What are those guys actually doing, the Orthodox guys? They got their long beards, and as George Costanza said, they got the funny hats. Does that make any sense? Isn't that just some sort of like, we like it the way it used to be? We're just traditionalist. And maybe their faith isn't really alive. And we Americans, we know better because we love everything new. And old is bad, and new is good. Young is better than old. And we understand better. And aren't they just kind of corny? I mean, it's not really good art. I mean, let's just admit it. You know, is that really a great picture of Jesus? I mean, couldn't somebody even get a little closer? I mean, what happened to the left side of his face? Was he in a fight? I mean, what, what's going on? So we're leery of church tradition. We're leery of it being dead. And into this sort of struggle comes the words of G.K. Chesterton a hundred years ago when Chesterton, Chesterton, in all of his pithy, sharp aphorisms, you know, he's really sharp-tongued, and he said, you know what? He said, tradition is the faith of the dead. It's the living faith of the dead. But he said, traditionalism, turning it into an ism, he said, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Which one are you? And we're scared, like, well, I think all traditions is just the dead, you know, dead thing of dead people. It's all dead. But that's not true. So we're leery of this sort of thing. Sort of thing. So here we are on All Saints Day attempting to, to embrace this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, you know, and run this race that's set before us, as Hebrews says. As a matter of fact, Russ, let's do that verse from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. It says this. If I can get it right. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings 
so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarded his shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This great cloud of witnesses. How do we participate in this sort of thing? How do we refocus our spirituality? This Pontecrator may be the way to go. Now, I say all that, and you say, like, oh, great. Here goes Wilburn again, you know, with one of his weird mystical things. And now we're all going to have to start carrying around, you know, icons and whacking ourselves in the head with them and acting like some sort of Monty Python skit around here. And, uh, like, that's not true at all. I don't think we should start carrying around icons or doing anything goofy like that. I'm simply using it to sort of rattle our cage. And I also want to educate you about icons so you don't think they're just guys with long beards and funny hats. There's a little bit of that going on. So let's begin here. Icons like the Ponto Crater, particularly images of Jesus from past centuries, like I said, this one's from the sixth century, they are seen by the Orthodox, by our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church, they are seen as prayer. Not something that causes you to pray, though that may happen. This is a prayer. And you're like, well, that's exactly what I thought it would be. Something strange. Well, let me give it to you this way. Most people love nature, right? I mean, this time of year, you guys and gals who hunt, you're thinking like, I'll tell you what a sanctuary is, is sitting in a stand and watching the sun come up in the stillness and the quiet. That's a holy moment for some people. Isn't nature, as it says in Romans chapter 1, God's natural evidence around us? I just put on my desktop on my computer uh, Half Dome from Yosemite, and it's like at sunrise or sunset or something. It's all bathed in orange and yellow and pink and stuff. Like, that is so cool. I just sit there and look at it. I don't even, you know, I'm not even doing anything on my computer. I sit there and look at the, the desktop picture. It looks like a church. It's huge, and it's round, and it's rock. And, you know, so you want to ask, like, well, is the rock, is it God? Would you worship that rock? And we say, no. God is not ground up in the minerals and in the mica and the granite and all the rest of that stuff or whatever's in there. That, God's not in there. That's pantheism or panentheism, God in everything. That's not what Christians believe. And that's not what we do when we're all thinking about nature, right? What happens in nature is we tend to think like, we feel like it's an ascent to God, like it's a fragrance going up before God. Because as the psalmist says, the mountains are clapping their hands and the trees are praising God and the rivers are singing. And you're saying, well, that's all just nice metaphor. That's just analogies and so forth. It's like, well, not for the psalmist. They're saying, look at the art of the artist. It is all praising God. It, and as Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, he says, all of creation is waiting and groaning and moaning, waiting to be redeemed upon Jesus' return. And you're like, well, you mean like the trees and the rocks have a consciousness to them? Like, well, maybe not like the way we think about it, but somehow it is all a prayer. Can we agree that nature is like a prayer? Okay, you don't agree with me, that's fine. What about worship music? I'm just going for the bottom shelf here, folks. What about the songs we just sang? Is that worship? Yes, it's worship, right? Nobody's going to disagree with me except for a few who didn't like the worship songs. But um, we think that's worship, right? Now, is God in the pixels and in the ink on the page? No. 
No, God's essence is not ground up into the little digital stuff. Would you consider the words and the music and the community and the oneness that we experience in that moment, would you consider that worship? You have to. That's why we did it. So now jump over to nature. So you're sitting in front of a, a, a lake, say, some morning, and watching the steam rise off of it as it cools, and watching the water calm, and perhaps the deer or something on the other side. And you're sitting there quietly, and you think, praise God. And you know what happens is you get a little small feeling, right? You feel really small. If you go for a walk in the woods this afternoon by yourself, you're going to get a little scared. <laughs> why do you get scared in the woods? Well, some don't, but I'll tell you why. It's because you feel vulnerable. And if you're kind of halfway nature-loving type person, you'll even begin to think like, these woods, they have a life of their own. And you're this close to saying like, they're praising God. Okay, a bit of a stretch. So take our concept about how we think worship music is actually a prayer. Take our concepts in about nature as being actually a prayer. The Orthodox and half of the church looks at pictures like this and they say, this is a prayer. It's not God. And then they use a fancy word called venerate, not worship. They, they don't worship the picture. They venerate it. And you say, well, I thought the Orthodox people, they kiss these and so forth. Like, well, that's just their culture. You know, go to France. You know, what's that little thing running around on Twitter right now? Like, how many times do you have to kiss somebody in France? Like, five times. Like, uh, I'm going to stay home. But nonetheless, you know, this is a prayer. And that's how it's used. Particularly the ones with Jesus. So let me educate you a little bit then about what's going on in an icon. First off, yes, it's not meant to be fine art. It's not a Bonicelli. It's not even a Thomas Hart Benton. It's all 2D. It's quite intentional, two-dimensional. It's not 3D. Everything's been flattened out. You know, in Western art, everybody's got a little halo ring, right? Some little plate above their head or some little ringlet or a spinny thing up above them. Notice this one. This is called the Nimbus, the Nimbus 2000. No, this is just called a Nimbus, and, and Harry Potter ripped off that word for whatever reason. But this is the circle, this gold, this gold plate is called the Nimbus. And what happens here isn't just to make it look cool, which happens. It's gold leaf, and what happens then is what, if you're in a candlelit room and you're in a sanctuary and you're sitting there by yourself, the thing will glow with the light, and it will suck you in to these dark eyes. Okay? That's why they always put these halos. They're not halos. They're called a mandoria. And that's why they'll put it as a 2D plate. Jesus, in particular, is always facing forward. His eyes are supposed to lock in with your eyes. And then here comes a special one about this particular version, this, this oldest of all icons. His face is split, right? Like I've said, you're like, wow, he really goofed up the left side. No, when you begin to study it, it's quite intentional. This technique on the original is called encaustic. It's wax with pigment. And it comes from Constantinople at the height of the Byzantine Empire when they were the wealthiest and had the best craftsmen and painters. The rest of it's been redone and touched up, but the face has never been touched. And the encaustic wax and pigment on here is exquisite. It's done. It's extremely difficult to make. And yet, this is done in 
exactly the way it was supposed to be done. The artist wanted it this way. Why? Because this is a volume of theology, and it says Jesus has two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And for a culture that couldn't read very well, although most Byzantines could read, for a culture that was illiterate, you could get books and books of, of, you know, is Jesus divine or is he human, all wrapped up in one picture. This was how they were doing it. And you and I, as the gazer of the icon, when you sit there and you begin to lock in on it, naturally, your question's going to become, so what about me? I have two sides to me, too. I have the side I want to be and the side that Jesus sees. And then I have the side that I don't want Jesus to see. I am mortal and divine at the same time. I am a saint and I am a sinner. And every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. You see, everyone, this sort of prayer is hard to come by for us in particular in our day and age because we tend to split up our spirituality. We segment life. We compartmentalize life. And if you're, I think what I've always studied is that if you have, you know, the Y chromosome, if you're a male, you are particularly adept at, at linearizing everything. That you, you stack all your dominoes up, and one's got to fall before the next. Now, women multitask, but guys don't, okay? And I was just talking to my wife the other night, and she said, maybe we should play a game. You mean like those games where you can sort the male and still, still beat me at hand and foot or pitch or something like that? Like, no, I don't want to play that game. I always lose. I'm so focused on winning the game. And you can do the mail and make phone calls and all this other stuff and play cards, and I, did, I lose. How do you do that? No answer. It's like this. We take life and turn it into a pie. We have our work pie. We have our home pie. We have our yard work pie. We have our sports pie. We have our Royals pie, our Chiefs pie. You know, what happened to the Chiefs during October? Poor guys. You know, nobody, I mean, the women are like, what? But the guys are all like, I was doing Royals. Oh, yeah, Chiefs. What are they doing? Oh, yeah, they're playing today. Anyway, you know, so we segment life. We got the children pie. We got the hobbies pie. You know, every, and we got the spiritual one. When I'm at church, I'm doing the church piece. But when I go to work, I'm not religious that much. I'm not praying. I'm not doing anything like that. That's work. But, but, in the life of the Spirit, there is only one pie piece. And it's this one. The whole thing is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And we get to this point when we run into the Apostle Paul where he uses this unique phrase that only Paul uses, and it is this. You are in Christ. In Christ. Not to Christ, not with Christ, not for Christ or anything like that. Just in Christ. Matter of fact, it's really hard to translate. And you can pull in any sort of translation that you happen to have with you, and you'll see Paul in his letters, the only one saying these words, in Christ. And we think, what do you mean, Paul, that we're in Christ? And I think actually what we do is we just kind of blow past it. As a matter of fact, here's a verse right out of Romans 8, where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you're like me and you've read this verse for most of your life, I tend to always focus on there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I'm free from sin. And I think about morals. And I think, you know, and I focus down my Christianity into a sort of a moral set. I get really happy that the fact that I am uh, redeemed and saved and that I get to go to heaven and be with Christ. And I never really even consider what does it mean then to be in Christ? I thought it's just because I'm sort of, you know, he's my substitute on the cross. But I think Paul means much more than that that he can't really convey. He's saying in Christ means that you are consumed by Christ. The best real way we could say it, which just wigs us out, would be you are inside Christ. Like, oh man, that's weird. No slicing, no segments. The rain comes down. The water that you breathe is Christ. All of the world is bathed in Christ. And the Orthodox understand it and the ancients understand it and we don't because we tend to go around splitting and separating everything. But real Christians from the past, this great cloud of witnesses that are, that's trying to embrace us, that's surrounding us, is saying, everything in your life, everyone, is a praise to me. Not all music is worshipful. Not everything that we do is God-honoring. But creation is honoring God all the time. And you can find Paul in Galatians 2.20. And if you've been around the farm very long in Christianity, you're going to know this verse. You'll have it memorized like I do. And it says, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. There's Paul trying to get at it. He's saying, he's in me. Everything is praise. And that's what this sort of picture is trying to get at. Gaze into the eyes of Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his wonder and grace. And here you have the light emanating from him as you concentrate on it and focus on it, and you simply ask this question, Jesus, what do you feel when you think of me? God, what do you think of me? It's the most basic prayer you could ever ask. God, what do you think of me? And then you begin to sort out, am I answering or is God answering? Am I just a crumbling old man or am I a young kid? Am I dying or am I living? Am I lonely? Am I sad? Or am I joyous and alive? Do I, do I want to wake up in the morning and greet the sun? Or can I not wait for this day to be done? God, what do you think of me? See, Christians have used pictures like this for centuries to pray. To cause them to actually just do, in our modern language, this is a psychological evaluation. <laughs> Divine and mortal us divine and mortal 
This is what causes us to pray. Just another little aspect, if you ever go to a museum or go to a church where you see these sort of pictures, it's sort of the lecture moment here. Um, we have a couple of pictures. Russ, if you could throw up these pictures. Notice this picture here. You're like, wow, they really don't understand what a vantage point is. They can't, there's no horizon. They can't figure out perspective. It's, and you look at it, look at the footstools, okay, where their feet are. Where are they pointing? They're coming right in on you. Every icon reverses perspective. It's quite intentional. I thought that the ancient people didn't know how to do perspective. I thought they just like goofed it all up. But they knew exactly what they're doing. If you begin to study it, they actually invented perspective, especially the Byzantines, who are the ones who invented like algebra and everything else. They are, they are trying to suck you into the picture. And that's why it's all 2D and the, the forced inverse perspective where you are actually the object. Okay? You understand what's going on? Very interesting. It's not as dumb as you think. It's actually pretty brilliant. Also, notice that everything is flat. So it's kind of like when your children would do their crayon art, you know, when they're three or four years old. How would they do it? They get out a piece of construction paper and they take the crayons and they do the little square house with the triangle roof and the little chimney with the smoke curl coming out. They put a little broccoli tree over there and then they put mom and dad and them and the other kids and the little sausage dog over there, right? And, you know, you don't sit around like an art critic and say, like, nah, that's lousy art, you know? Like, where's the fine brush strokes in this crayon picture? You think... What is your child trying to say? They're not trying to convey awesome art, although they may think that. They're actually trying to tell you, who am I and I belong in this picture. There's my mom and there's my dad and there's my house and there's my dog. It is a story that says, I belong here. And in these kind of stories and in these kind of pictures, it's saying, gaze at it and understand who you are. That's why it's pointing at you. That's why the forced perspective. That's why the flat halo. That's why the full front eyes and the gazing right, right at you. It's trying to penetrate you, put you in Christ, and cause you to pray. Now, does this disrupt your status quo, especially if your prayers are broken these days? They seem to be kind of flaccid and flat, not really working. Perhaps you need to shake it up. And it's this sort of thing where you say, like, well, I can never use a picture of Jesus. That's so corny. Like, well, think about it. Get smart about it. Shake it up. If reading the Bible's not doing it for you, then shake it up. When I was on sabbatical years ago, my sanctuary was the Nelson Atkins Museum. I had several pieces in there. There's a St. Jerome and some other peoples and uh, John the Baptist, the Caravaggio, which actually makes the museum, by the way. They got it for a song, and every other museum in the world wants it. And I would go in there, and I'd sit on a Sunday, and I would just think about God. <laughs> All right, so maybe you're not an art critic. You don't really care about this stuff. Well, you got nature, and you got worship. You've got a lot of other things to do. Let's break it up, people. There's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and we need to get with it. There's an urgency to it, actually. I'm not trying to create some sort of anxiety attack or anything like that. I'm just simply saying, 
Don't be lackadaisical in your spirituality. Don't fall asleep in the whole thing, okay? Because it's important. You and your children and those around you are counting on you, and your spiritual fever will, will change. Your, your, that fervor will change the world. It's important. And so here's my recommendation. My recommendation then for the month of, uh, of November here is that we would read the book of Acts. It's about 28 chapters long. Just read it. Read the thing through. It'll tell you the story. And, it, and there's a couple of themes going on. One, the Spirit is moving the gospel forward. And secondly, it's always in danger. It, there's always a near miss. And right there, like Stephen, like we read before, it's like, well, that's it. I guess the church is done. They just killed off Stephen. Who's left? But it keeps going. And spoiler alert, you get to the end of Acts, and it just seems to drop off like the last page is missing. And I think it was quite intentional by Luke, who's the author. I think he's trying to say, the story doesn't end. It's you. It's you and you and you and you. You are continuing 2,000 years later to write the book of Acts. Get on with it. Paul has taken the message, scholars would say, and he's, he's being shipwrecked and he's almost dead and he's bitten by a snake and all the rest of this sort of thing is going on in the book of Acts. And yet the gospel bearer comes through drenched but not drowned to someday go to Rome and stand before Caesar who on his coin says, High priest, son of God. That's what it says with his image on there. That's what Caesar's image says. And Paul wanted to stand before Caesar, whether it be Nero at the time or whoever, and say, you are not the son of God. You are not the high priest. Jesus is. And we don't know if he got there or not. It doesn't say. But it's up to us to continue it and to make it happen. That's why we support things like the underground persecuted house church in China because it's evening for them now. It's because people like that are taking the gospel to unreached people groups. And their life is in danger. And they can be jailed, they can be arrested, and most of them have, the ones that we work with. And like we say, when we go over to China, we don't go over there to fix them or do anything like that. We just go over there to participate and be with them just to go on pilgrimage, as we say, and just sit with them. Just surround them and say, we love you and we pray for you. What can we do to serve? That's the church, everyone. No matter what century it's been in, everything is an ascent and a prayer to God. It is all a fragrance. And like Romans, I mean, like Revelations chapter 5, verse 8 says, and surrounding the throne of God were the saints holding up these bowls. And what was coming out of the bowls? Incense, And it doesn't say the incense were like prayers. It says the incense is the prayers of the saints, of you and me. That's happening right now around the throne of God. When we pray, it is incense lifting up to God. They are prayers. It is worship. Lean into this, everyone. Really, your life depends on it. Your, your prayer life will make you into somebody. And if it's not working these days, then get on it and figure it out. And if you got to shake it up and do something weird, 
then try it. It's worth it. You are so important to the mission. You've got to get on this thing if it's all falling apart. And it's just sitting there sort of dead. You with me? Okay, so read the book of Acts uh, and keep that thing going. Acts 29 is your chapter to write, so let's keep that going. Would you stand with me, please? And we will conclude with these, some of my favorite words from the Apostle Paul. Uh, this, by the way, is how the uh, uh, Anglican Church, the Church of England, this is how they end their morning prayers. And that's where I got this. It's right out of the Book of Common Prayer. And they end with these words that come right out of the middle of Ephesians, out of Paul's letter, where he just gets so doggone excited he can't help it. Okay? And he says this. So join me, okay? Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.